Welcome to The Next Journey, the adventure travel podcast with me, Andrew St. Pierre White. I'm a prisoner of this Hello and welcome to the adventure travel podcast, The Next Journey. I am Andrew St. Pierre White. Uh, good day to you. Uh, welcome to the Next Adventure podcast. My special guest is all the way in California. And of course, I am in Western Australia in Perth. Hello, Chris Collard. How are you today? I'm great, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> I, my inspiration, I should introduce you to my audience. My inspiration for giving you a call and asking you to do this is, was really based on your LinkedIn picture where you are kneeling down, holding a long lens under the belly of a Russian transport T-134, I think it was, aircraft, and in Antarctica. That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> that right. was why I thought I'd give you the call. Tell us about You yourself. know, that was all smoke and mirrors, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> all AI. <laughs> That's the trouble now. nowadays. You don't know if it's real. Well, that was obviously real. Tell us about that particular. I mean, you're, you, you're an adventure travel broadcaster and um, you have a f illustrious, long and illustrious uh, career. Unlike me, where I do most of my work for my own media, you do work for many media channels and are in high demand, I understand. Tell us about yourself and perhaps one or two of the most interesting journalistic encounters you've had in your your long career. You know, I, Andrew, I've been really, really lucky. Uh, I have I've actually been across like all seven continents, um, but I left a 17-year job working with UPS to like jump off a bridge 20-something uh, you know, years ago. And I had no choice but to make it work because I really didn't have a parachute when I jumped off. So... Um, yeah, the Antarctica, uh, to your subject, your question was, it, it was it was part of the Expedition 7 uh, project, which was driving the same land cruiser around the world. Um, Antarctica, uh, the, the cruiser actually made it there, but that project was going from Novo, which is the Russian air base on the eastern hemisphere south of Cape Town. So we flew out of Cape Town and uh, driving all the way to the South Pole. Um, the goal, if we made it to the South Pole on time, you know, with enough time, because we had to get back to Novo, it was a double crossing. It was to the South Pole and back or to the South Pole and the Ross Ice Shelf and back. But if we had enough time, we were going to do the whole thing. But there was only one flight off the continent um, and we had to be on it. So it, we were, it was really kind of a push once we were decided it's like, OK, we're going to shoot for the, you know, for the Ross Ice Shelf. Um, but great project. It was with a um, guy named Greg Miller and, of course, Scott Brady, who was my publisher at the time at Overland Journal, um, and a guy named Geasley, who was from Arctic Trucks. So um, definitely a, a highlight of you know, the projects that I've been involved with. Um, right. It's just a truly spectacular place. You get up on the plateau and it's like the surface of the moon. Did you do the, the full circuit with Expedition 7 or just that section? You know, I, I did not. Um, I was running the magazine at the time, and it was kind of a, a one-man show. So I just simply did not have time. I was invited to go on a number of the other legs, which would have been great. I had traveled on a lot of those places already, but it was more of just bandwidth and, you know, my commitment to – I mean, I took – 
almost a month to do the Antarctica leg. And yeah, so you know how it is. You got a 130 pages you got to fill. And <laughs> uh, so I was, yeah. I was, that was, that was my target when they started the project. Um, you know, the, the Africa, they went through Southern Africa and I've spent quite a bit of time in Southern Africa. Um, I've been to Australia 10 or more times and done most of the, you know, all the sections that they were going to do. Uh, so Antarctica was the target and it was, it was worth it. It was cold. Um, especially, I mean, I hadn't camped in 40 minus, you know, minus 40 temperatures before, um, but we had really good gear and, uh, um, you know, a good team and it was, it was just one heck of a trip. Yeah. 24, seven daylight. It was a, you know, it was a fa fabulous, fabulous endeavor. And I, and I followed it, um, through their various media channels. And of course, went to see last couple of months ago, two months ago, went to see the, the actual vehicles in the museum. Tell me about um, your your expedition travel and, and racing history. You, you've done a lot of work with the, the Badger events. Tell me about that. Yeah, I have. You know, when I started, Andrew, with my what I call rookie journalism, I started covering events and uh, I realized like, OK, there's um, you know, there's some really cool stuff going on around the world. I've seen some of it, you know, in the magazines and I need to go cover it. So my first one was the Outback Challenge uh, in your neck of the woods out in Broken Hill. Right. And I had spent uh, the previous three or four years, I bumped into a Rus uh, editor of a Russian magazine, uh, off-road magazine, at the SEMA show. I, I apologize. And he goes, oh, okay, I, uh, I, uh, it's okay. And I said, where are you from? You know, uh, he says, uh, Andre, uh, off-road magazine, Moscow. And it just clicked on the light bulb for me. And I realized, like, wow, I've been busting my tail selling an article to one U.S. magazine, and there's going to be an outlet like in dozens of countries that might be interested, non-competing markets, different language. And I spent uh, quite a bit of time tracking those down. Um, so by the time I hit my first event in uh, Australia, I was able to get it out to seven or eight international publications. And um, that kind of helped springboard me to the next one. Like when I contacted the next event promoter, um, and they don't know who you are. I was like, Hey, how you doing? I'm Chris. Uh, you know, this is kind of what I do. I'd love to attend your event. So it kind of, kind of snowballed after that. It's pretty, it was a yeah, super exciting time for me. Right. And how long ago was it that you, uh, left Overland Journal? Technically it was 2018. When I met you at the BFG, uh, KM3 launch, were you with them or had you just left? I'm trying to remember what year what that was, 2019, 2018. Yeah, I was on I was on my way out. It was just kind of a, a slow separation. So I was a contract editor. I actually met Scott Brady, who's the publisher. I had done a three part series on Mexico around 2002 or 2003. And um, he was a subscriber to the magazine. I guess he wrote the editor, if I remember correctly, he wrote the editor and uh, the editor forwarded it to me. And it was just like, hey, that was an awesome thing. And uh, so I called, I called the guy. I didn't know who it was. I just thought it would be, you know, nice to call the guy. And uh, you know, he introduced himself, and he's like, I'm really excited about getting into this whole Overland thing. And he, of course, you know, he's a subscriber. And I'm like, okay, that's awesome, cool. It's great. It's fun. And then, you know, you know, we touched bases a few times at events, and uh, he 
called me in 2005 and he said, uh, Hey, I'm starting this thing called expedition portal. Um, and I was like, great, that's awesome. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, he called again, ran into him at the SEMA show. And I think, and he's just like, he's like, Hey, I'm starting this magazine. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be really cool. And this was right at the time that the U S magazines, it was prime media, I think had been sold and they just canceled about 10 labels, you know, 10 books and fired a bunch of people. And I was like, you know, it's a pretty tough time for a magazine, buddy. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that's okay. It's going to be, it's going to be completely different. And I'm like, I'm like, awesome. And he said, can you send me 60 bucks for a subscription? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and then uh, he had, I had done a couple articles for him. Um, and then he contacted me, actually, it was at the Steema show again around in 2010. He said, you know, there's gonna be some changes in the magazine and, and asked if I was interested in, you know, taking over as the editor. You know, and that was it was fun. It was a good chapter. I mean, it had its uh, had its roller coaster rides, but um, I, you know, I'd always been on the contributing side um, for tons of different publish publications. I early on, I was doing stuff for National Geographic Adventure and Cigar Aficionado, anybody that would publish my stuff, and it was almost all automotive related. So, um, but I told him I was like, I would do a lot of commercial photography and I mean, I'll be a contract editor, but I didn't want to be a W2 because when you're W2, they own everything you do. And, um, you know, I have, you know, I've always maintained that if I shoot it, I own it <laughs> or if I write it, I own it. Um, but it was good. Yeah. That was a, um, I loved working with the, you know, contributors and some of them were so inspiring and, you know, some of the, you know, some of these folks that, um, have been traveling for years. And I would bump into them or find out about them. And I'm like, hey, you got to write something for me. I mean, you're legitimate, real deal. Um, you know, I, I use the word expedition extremely lightly because uh, I think it's way overused in this world. But these guys were legit. You know, they're crossing all parts of Africa, East Africa, the DRC, the Congo, um, the, you know, the darkest areas of the, of the world. And I'm like, like Dan Grek, who you probably know. Um, hmm. I'm like, it was yeah, these guys inspired me, even though I was supposed to be writing this magazine and inspiring other people. They, yeah, they were one of the highlights. Right. How have you seen the overlanding scene change in terms of the journalistic work that you're doing and overall? Because obviously it's grown, the market has grown massively, particularly in the US. Mm -hmm. But how do you see the change of having evolved over the last, say, 10 or so years? Uh, good, good question. Uh, some of the changes that I've seen are that I think that the manufacturing world, um, and this is this is kind of what I, I see from even when I was at the Journal or some of the other U.S. magazines like Wheels of Field or Tread or um, OVR, is that the overland term, the, the people are not off-roaders. And I think you might know Gary and Monica Westcott of the Turtle Expedition. Um, they were doing, they were my idols. They were doing this stuff back in the seventies and the eighties. And I couldn't wait to get the magazine and, and like figure out where turtle expedition was going, but they insisted like, we're not off-roaders, you know, they've, they've been all over the world, but it's like, we're not off-roaders. We just like adventuring and going places and that we have four wheel drive is the way that we do it. And from the, like the manufacturing industry side, the idea of say overlanding, you know, it hits a much broader demographic much broader interest base uh, because it not only covers a lot of people that consider themselves four wheelers, but it also covers people that 
you know, might be, um, you name it, I, in the States, I would say in the Sierra Club, which is kind of an anti-access group, but it's like all of them have four-wheel drives and they're all get, getting rooftop tents and it's a huge organization. So from a marketing standpoint, it's, uh, I think it's been pretty amazing because so many people, it looks, it's aspirational, the idea of, you know, heading off across the Nevada desert or across the Australian outback, you know, with, um, I would say a map and a compass, but now they sort out like logistical plans and tactical plans and all kinds of stuff like that. <laughs> tactical meal plans. That's my favorite. <laughs> so from that side, I think it's amazing. I mean, the industry has just exploded and I think it has, a, you know, it still has a ways to go. I think it's, it's gained a lot of traction, but I think that the, it's going to be, a, a, I would guess a continually growing sector of the, of the uh, automotive enthusiast markets. But some of the things have changed and, and I'm sure that you see it is that the idea has become more gear centric than go and do it centric. You know, people spend um, so much time setting their rig up and thinking that it's like, I've got to have this and I got to have that and I got to have this and I got to have that. It's all got to be perfect. And then I'm going to have a scheduled time when everybody goes to the bathroom and then where we have to be this place and where we have to be that place. And I think it's lost some of what I have always felt is, you can call it overlanding now, but, um, you know, just the sense of adventure, which is when you come to the fork in the road, you know, take it left or right, it doesn't matter. Or if you're in a little village in, you know, um, South Luanga in Zambia, and somebody says, oh, you should go see this waterfall, you know, to have the mental flexibility to say, I should go do that. I want to go down to Lake Kariba. I heard that there's like... A guy down there with a boat that will take you fishing, you know, in a, you know, dugout canoe. So it's the, I think it's lost a little bit of that um, spontaneity with a lot of people. The way I, I I agree with you, and I think one of the problems is that there are so many people that spend so little time and have so little time to actually do trips that they live almost vicariously by buying kits, by planning and planning and replanning and replanning and replanning and feel as if they're actually doing overlanding. It gives them a certain sense of accomplishment, even though they're actually doing overlanding because, well, a proper overland trip in the term that you and I would call overlanding is something that uh, at the very least was probably a week, if you know, at the very minimum. But uh, so few people get a chance to do that long term, take three, four weeks and do some, do a expedition where you can actually call it an expedition so they fill their time up with buying kit and i i, I don't it, i understand where you're coming from but i kind of don't blame them for it and i suppose it feeds the industry because the more kit the more advertisers want to advertise and they want to more advertise yeah. they more publications get some of their cash to to publicize those parts, mm -hmm. those components, those accessories. And so the industry is growing, not because of actually people doing the trips, it's growing because people are buying stuff. And, and honestly, Andrew, it's like, especially as the editor of the journal, you know, I go to Overland Expo or I talk to people and they would, you know, they're super excited and they've got everything. And I've had people tell me, it's like, I haven't bought, I haven't bought one thing that you didn't endorse. And that puts a lot of weight from an editorial standpoint, huge amount of weight. I mean, I've always been no gloves on reviews. You know, I 
work hard for my money. And although we get a lot of gear in this industry, it's like I buy stuff too. It's like, you know, it's people work hard for their money. Don't mislead them. But I'll talk to people and they've got everything. And, you know, I have heard people kind of kind of trash talk, you know, the overlanders that have all this stuff. I'm excited for them. I think it's great because they're having fun and it, it's, it's, you know, as much fun sometimes putting your, all your kit together, all your gear together and, and get ready and getting ready and doing the planning and uh, as it is actually being there. So, I mean, I, it, it's become super gear centric, but it's also become so, that part of it has become like people's hobby to get ready for the trip that they're going to do. I think it's great. I'm glad that the, that those folks are out there and, and gravitate towards um, kind of doing what we do, even if it's as a, sh a shorter period of time. You know, one of my greatest rewards in this business is when I meet somebody and they're like, I read this thing that you wrote and it really motivated me to like go there or do thing or put that on my bucket list. It's, so it's to me, that's rewarding. It's that I always endeavor to, to put the reader or the viewer in the vehicle, you know, in the situation and environment with me, whether I'm hiding behind a termite mound trying to hide from an elephant or, you know, driving across the Simpson desert, whatever that happens to be. Um, so that's, you know, that's the rewarding part. I mean, it's, it is, I think it's an exciting time for a lot of people and it has uh, generated a lot of creativity from the gear side and a lot of stuff that looks the same, but every once in a while I'll see something I'm like, that's a really good idea. I could use that. Your, your articles, do you, do you have any way of measuring the popularity of your articles? Because you like me will do an article on some gear, some equipment, some application of an, uh, of a, of a piece of accessory. And then you will do an event, which is a traveling event, an overlanding event. Which mm -hmm. of those do you know one or the other are more popular for the magazines mm -hmm. or the readers? Any idea? You know what? That's a really hard thing to quantify because uh, a lot of times you don't you don't get that feedback. I mean, obviously, if it's in a digital format, you can you can dig up those analytics. If it's on YouTube, you can dig up those analytics. Um, but you know, from the print magazine world, and even if it's digitized, if they're you know the outlets you're working with are doing both, it's it's kind of hard to tell. Right. Yes. I know what I I know what, what I gravitate towards the adventure stuff. I know. Absolutely. But, you know, I get I get complaints all of the time. Oh, you're not doing enough trips. And I say to them, I've just done three. What do you, I don't understand what you're talking about. And it turns out what, of course, they're on YouTube. So they'll say so YouTube says, oh, the algorithm says you like the kit stuff. So we'll send you more kit stuff. And when Andrew does something mm -hmm. in the wilderness, well, we might not necessarily show that to you because we know you like the kit stuff. And I have to say to them, are you watching all of the videos or some of the videos? And generally, people are more interested in, than, more interested in kit than trips. And I'm not sure why, but that is, uh, if I look at pure demographic, if I do a build vehicle, a vehicle build over a year, and I'll do, say, 15 videos, I'll have, uh, within six months, I'll have a million views. But if I do a trip, which is very expensive, so much fun and far more fun than the trip stuff, I'll yeah. get half a million in two years. That's the difference. Yeah. And that's, I find frustrating. Yeah, I know, because we want to do more trips because they're fun. <laughs> so you have to, you know, you, 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 we like, not unlike the people actually using the, buying accessories. 
we collect our accessories and we plan and, and then we go and do a trip. The trip is actually what it's all about. And that's our favorite content. But at the same time, to feed that content, we do the kit stuff and we keep all the accessory manufacturers happy. And you're absolutely right. Uh, dollars are hard won. If you, if you, because you like me, we, we get some sponsorship of some, but we get kit given to us. We don't get money. We get some, please put this on your show in your article. And sometimes they'll say, uh, yes, we'll put this a piece of equipment on your vehicle, but um, please don't criticize it. And that's the moment I say, no deal. <laughs> that's no deal, boy. I'll pay. I'll I, appreciate I appreciate that. You know, I think you're the same and your, your, your articles are fairly, not overly critical, but not, they're not, they don't appear to be pandering. You no, know, I appreciate you saying that, Andrew. I mean, that's a huge, as you know, that's a huge issue in our industry is that, um, you know, advertisers say if, whether it's digital or if it's print, they're going to get ink or real estate in the magazine or they're going to get promised a cover. I mean, I had a conversation with somebody recently that was asking me if I would review a product and, you know, said that they were really hoping, actually, they wanted me to do a product in a test. And they were hoping that they would come out on top of that test and maybe get a cover. And I honestly, I said, um, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> I don't, that's not how I work. I said, I've done tons of gear tests. I, you know, very, fairly industry standard gear tests, whether it's LED lights. Um, had a friend that his business was creating surgical and cardio headlamps. So it's like, let me use their whole lab to test head, to headlight, uh, LED headlights. And then, flashlights and then headlamps. So it's like, these are like people, you know, in the industry would look at that and they're like, holy crap, you cannot argue with the, the data. I just tested solar panels. I went to Merlin Labs in San Jose, California with seven different manufacturers products and Merlin's were in there as well, but they let me use their lab and whatever goes into the test goes in and what are the results, the results are, that's just the way they are. So it's, it, it it's uh can be unpopular with advertisers um but it's like you you got to hold your own and you got to maintain your ethics whatever those ethics are um so but that's not to say it's like if you've got products you love whether you love a particular brand of tire or winch and you have a partnership with those folks i don't i don't call them sponsorships i call them partnerships because you know sponsors getting something for nothing and and in my opinion, this business is like, there's nothing is free. And, and that's, that's the wonderful thing about this business that in partnerships, it's a win-win. It's a business relationship, whether it's um, written or unwritten. But if, you know, if you get somebody that you work with that you get product from, you can even get financing from them. Um, it, you just have to be very careful that you don't find yourself compromising your standards or the ethics of the industry of editorial by you know, pumping somebody up that, you know, shouldn't be because they're giving you stuff. Um, yeah, it's one of the things I appreciate about your, the videos that you do. It's case, it seems to me at least like you just pull off the gloves and you say what you feel. And there aren't that many people out there that will do that. You know, they might say things like, you know, Chevy's great, Ford stock, Toyota's are on top of the world, just so they can like build arguments within the viewer base. But um, just if it's, you know, if it's bare bones opinion, um, yeah, sometimes that's it's an interesting think, world we we live in because we're accused because I'll do a build <clears throat> and it's a lot of money. The people that the accessory and investors collectively invest a great deal of money and it's a lot of money 
in value. I don't see a cent of it, but I do own it. So the uh, some of the audience will say, well, you were given it. Of course, you're going to say good things about it. And I, and I have to kind of say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I asked for it for a reason, for a very good reason. Either I was really interested in it and I wanted to review it. And if I stick it on my car and I don't leave it there, well, you'll know why. Or I'll share with you whatever happens. And aren't I lucky? I get to keep it. But I pick it. I'm very, very fussy. And I'm offered things, and I'm sure you are all the time, offered things for a build. Please fit our awning. Please fit our this. Please fit our that. Because they know it's big bucks in their hands because they sell a lot of it. Once you once, And I, I don't consider these endorsements because I've, asked, I've been offered ambassadorships on several brands. And I said, no, I'm, I'm the, the only thing I'm an ambassador to is to the West Australia Parks Foundation, which is a, a non-profit environmental thing. There's no money in it. It's supporting environmental causes, not supporting the sale of a roof rack. So I've had to just say, uh, thanks. I really appreciate it, but no thanks. But I'm not even using your XY anyway. Why, why are you contacting me? Uh, <laughs> so it's an interesting world we live in. We've and, got to be polite, yeah. but at the same time, a little bit picky, I feel. Now, and, and I 100% agree with those, all of that. Um, it's interesting because I was, when I left Overland Journal, BF Goodrich reached out to me and asked me if I would be a you know, brand ambassador. That, and that, that's part of why we met in uh, Melbourne for the KM3 pro, uh, launch. But when they did that, I told them, I said, you know, I'm an editor. I'm a journalist. I'm going to be writing about all types of products and tire, uh, t other companies' tires. And they said, and we know that, Chris. We've already talked about it. We just, we would like you to, you know, wear our hat. And and it was easy for me because honestly, my first set of tires was around 1981. BF Goodrich tires was 1981 on a Dodge Challenger, my high school car. And I was like, man, I'm going to get those TA radials because those are like the baddest tires out there <laughs> on Krager wheels. I was like the hot ticket for a high school kid. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, so that thing. So that was easy. Was that a was that a a, a paid ambassadorship? I'm I'm curious because Brief Goodrich suit. I was and it's my only other car, company that I've actually been an ambassador to, and that was for BF Goodrich. And we had a, a three year contract, and I think I got some new management. But soon after the launch, they actually I don't think they fired me is the right word, but they said no, we're changing we're changing our. I don't want to point fingers and accuse them of anything, but they're just saying yeah. we're changing the way we do things. And that's what they said. So I have to accept that as yeah. uh, on face value. But I, I thought that perhaps they got so ticked off with me because I had some problems crossing the Simpson with a 28575 um, on the troop carrier, which is a bit too wide for the troop carrier because of its body, the body shape and things. And so on the yumps, when going through that very, very rough, you've crossed the Simpson, you know how those you, those things where you, you try and moderate the speed, try and keep the speed low, but you've got to keep it going to get up and down. And you just try right. and find a nice balance. And every now and again, that my right back wheel, I could hear it going hock, hock, hock on the bodywork because it was this much wider than any other tire mm. had. They only had the 285 75s for me. And I said, and I think my downfall, I said, oh, I don't like white tires. I prefer, I prefer thinner tires. And I think they, they probably thought, well, that's not good for business. But anyway, uh, they then said to me, no more ambassadorships, because I had a paid ambassadorship. It wasn't a lot of money, but it wasn't a small amount either. It was, it was worth it for me. 
and I had used their tires since 2009 and I had 2009 not a single puncture until I was I was with Paul Marsh in 2014 and I'd done a lot of trips with the KO2 the KMs mostly KO2s and uh that I love those tires. They were fantastic tires. Absolutely brilliant. Incredibly reliable. Not great in mud. Very good in sand. General purpose gravel road. Really good grip, traction, mm -hmm. and tough. So I liked them a lot. And uh, and I did a video. I remember saying only one puncture in, I don't know how many thousand kilometers it was. But anyway, it was good publicity for them. And we had a very good relationship because it was a damn good product. And I was a bit disappointed when they pulled out because um, I had to go find another product that I liked. I've now got one that I, I like as much, but it's not a sponsorship. It, it, they say to me, how many times would you like, Andrew? We'll sort you out. And that's the end of the deal. And they, uh, they're the Falcons, and I, and I like them, and they're suiting me well. But since those early days of those BF Goodriches, they were so much better than anything else. Now I'm not so sure because other tyre manufacturers have got better and better and better. So there are some other tyres that I probably I think are probably as good as as the BO, the KO2s. Um, yeah, it's it's a great tyre. And to answer your question, uh, it wasn't a, a, spaid, a, a paid ambassadorship. They have different levels. They have their performance team, which are you know the racers, the Rob McCacrens, those, those folks, and then they have the other level, which is just brand ambassador. So it was, you know, it was product only. So it wasn't like a, you know, a huge thing. And, and, and if it makes you any feel any better, I got fired as well. <laughs> they got a, they recently had a new handler for their ambassadors and social media. And she seems to think that, I don't know, I look at some of the people that they've got on there now and I'm like, okay, so there's a million viewers, but they're just a bunch of knuckle draggers, you know, looking at it, looking for a cute girl. So I don't know. I got, I, um, myself, I mean, um, Charlene Bauer, who is the ladies off-road network person that just kills it on the media side. And she's a super, um, always been a fan of BF Goodrich, still drives a BF Goodrich flag. You know, her Jeep is wrapped BF Goodrich. Um, but apparently she was let go too. And other, you know, Del Albright, friend of mine, off-road hall of fame guy, uh, he was dropped as well. So that, you know, I guess it comes and goes. Yeah, the ambassadorship is an interesting thing. I think it's okay. It's just that you, if it's with a, a product, a company that you already know that you love, you you don't you're not going to change your opinion on that product or the brand because you're now an ambassador. It's like it's just stuff that's like you spent your own hard money buying it before, and now it's like it's great. I can you know wear the hat and get a few sets of free tires. Let's talk about some of the most exciting and adventurous and scary moments in your expedition. Can I use the word expedition? I know that you're that you're careful about using the word expedition. Um, I'm talking about proper expedition. Maybe you should qualify the word expedition. What's your start with that? What's your definition of the word expedition? Interesting. I don't. I don't think anybody has asked me about my definition of the word expedition. I would say it's like the Antarctica thing for sure. I mean, it's going off into a place that there are a lot of no, unknowns. There's not a support system, or much of a support system, uh, and you just got to stay sharp and frosty all the time. Um, the definition of an expedition, because I, I'm like a fan of 
people like Shackleton and Amundsen and Scott and these, you know, and Ben Carlin, uh, right? He's right from your neck of the woods with Half Safe. Um, I mean, it's people just are so awe-inspiring and things that they did that it makes me feel like I should use the word expedition very cautiously. You know, and they mentioned the whole idea about overlanding. It's like when, I don't know if you recall, but in 2019, we did a 50th anniversary recreation of the East-West Australia, um, 1969 East-West Australia trip. I did it with uh, Ben Davidson, kind of co-produced it with Ben Davidson from Jeep Action. You know, I, we called it an expedition. I'd say, yes, yeah, sections of it were because we didn't cross the Simpson. We didn't cross on the French line of the QAA. We we went up to Beachcomber and we took a tangent straight across the to the Andado station the same way that they did it in 1969. And we were just cutting fresh tracks through the dunes for um, seven days uh, without support. So it was... You know, he, I wouldn't say no support. We had an inner reach. Technically, we had a satellite phone, so it was nowhere near what these guys did in 1969. Um, we actually had two of them, uh, Ian McDonald and John Eggleston, the videographer, came with us on this trip, which was just awesome. Um, so we did call. I did. We did call that expedition. Um, I did one in Africa about 15 years ago. Um, I just did a lot of work with Hummer back then. And they produce all their non-North American spec vehicles in Port Elizabeth. And uh, just kind of the idea came up at a pro program here in California with uh, um, Nick Richards, who was the communications director about Africa. And it actually was because um, Jeep had just launched the JK. And they did it in Africa. And I had mentioned to Nick around the campfire, I was like, you know, they really blew it on the, the whole JK launch. And he's like, what do you mean? So, well, they fly everybody in. You know how the programs go. They fly you in for the, the viewers. They fly you in. You get red carpet for a day, day and a half, drive the vehicle, and then they fly you out. And and something like the launch of the JK I, and the, bringing everybody into Africa, uh, Southern Africa, they should have grabbed four or five hardcore dudes and done a trip from, you know, crossing from Zambia to Kasani Ferry back then. And then all the way across to central Kalahari down the, to the Kutse and, you know, done something legitimate, like and some serious editorial and a legitimate trip. Um, so Hummer uh, gave me uh, an H3 and I had it for two months. So picked it up in Port Elizabeth. We set it up with a local shop and um, went up through Lesotho down basically the route that I just described in reverse up into Zambia and then down through across Malawi. Uh, Malawi down through Mozambique, uh, you know, so I call that the Hummer um, Africa expedition. So I don't know. I didn't answer your question very well, but it's it's more of... Um, you did. That, that is, I regard oh. that as an expedition. And somebody quoted me the other day, and I, I got a little bit... It was actually at Expo West. He, I heard him say to a group of people, he was addressing a group of people, he said, uh, to qualify for an overlander, to really as if it's some badge of honor, but to qualify, you have to have crossed at least two border posts. And I, <laughs> I felt like running in there and saying, <laughs> Who said that? Who said that? What a load of, honestly, <laughs> this is a badge that you're trying to elevate because you've crossed two borders. Now you want to elevate and make yourself a little bit better than everybody else. 
And yeah. I said in a recent video, I mentioned this in a recent video, and I said my, my attitude is, and I was at a campsite in a camper. So I was nice, cozy, and comfortable, and I was 20 minutes or less away from the shops. And I said anybody who's trying to do more than this, in other words, getting away from the comforts of having a town close, a shop close, and communications easy and close, trying to get away from that, and trying to get off the main track where caravans can access. So you now are self-sufficient in a compact, not necessarily, but certainly an agile vehicle that you can take away from the tar roads and the city streets and find new places and look for, you know, solitude. You're an overlander. You, you, just that, just that desire. You're an overlander. Sure. That's, that's, what do you think of that? Do you think that's apt? I don't think that there, I've heard similar definitions of it's not a trip until somebody breaks down and until there's something that actually happens that's bad or you get Shanghai to Zambia by rogue immigration officers. Um, yeah, I did that. Um, but again, I think it's a mentality. It's like, I love going to Mexico. I love work, traveling in Baja. And when I go down there, I've got a general idea of what I'm going to do, but the entire 900 Peninsula is just a spider web of tracks. And if I, I'll look for one, the stuff I haven't done before, I'm like, um, it's like, wonder where this goes and follow it to the other, you know? So it's, to me, it's more of a mentality. It's like, you might, you've got your vehicle, you've got the stuff that you need, but the, the overland side is more, as I mentioned earlier, it's like when you, you come to the fork in the road, you take it. And if you talk to a local at a fish taco stand, and he's like, ah, ah, the pescaderas down on this beach, they have clams, they have almeja today. So clams, it's like, ah, let's go down and buy some fresh clams from the fishermen. And it's just spontaneity. Um, it's not about race air intakes. Um, it's not a, about all the gear because, you know, we, you and I both know that we've seen people go overlanding and vehicles that you would not consider, pe most people wouldn't consider an overland vehicle. But you asked about scary stuff. I was uh, covering the Outback Challenge in Morocco um, 15 or 16 years ago, and I was in a, the media car I was riding in was an ex-race vehicle. Um, so it, a lot of stuff was taken out of it, uh, including the seatbelts. And I was in the back, there was like a cooler, like an Airbnb-type cooler bolted down between myself and the French journalist, young, young French journalist that was with us. And I was just like, I was uncomfortable. I had a bad feeling and I always try to follow my gut. And so I had asked him, I was like, you know what? I'd like to get out of this vehicle and get into that, you know, another car. I mean, they had some regular SUV type vehicles because there are no seatbelts. And the French Moroccan dude that was driving was like, ah, oh, it's fine. It'll be okay. And I, I kind of pushed the subject. I, he's around the bivouac. Tell everybody about the American. Oh, the American needs a seatbelt. Well, the next night, we're heading down some windy dirt road with cliffs on one side and mountains on the other, and then sand dunes. and And I'm just, I'm just got a bad feeling. I'm holding onto the handle up here, and just watching over the driver's, you know, shoulder, out the headlights. And suddenly, it's like car just heads off the road. And I didn't hear what he said. I found out later that he said no steering. Uh, and, you know, Tyra, a rod end broke, we hit an embankment and we just, we barrel rolled two and a half times down the road. It was violent and uh, scary. We all survived. Nobody got thrown out. 
Um, my whole left side got torn up pretty good because we went over like that. So it's my side down first. Um, but that was scary. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, there have been a few others. That's nasty. Yeah, there have been a few others. Yeah. Moroccan hospitals, you don't want to be in them. They're very third world. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, it reminds me of a story in Swaziland, the launch of the Land Cruiser 100. They, they supply a Toyota supply, a, a representative with two journalists. I'm driving, enjoying the car. The chap with us is a guy called Uppi Reinecke. He was a rally driver. After an hour or so, he said, um, do you mind if I drive? I haven't even driven it yet. And I said, absolutely not. Please drive. Being a rally driver, I thought, well, I'm going to keep a eye on how he drives and just, you know, just suck it all up. We had another journal in the back, don't remember his name, who refused to put on a seatbelt. And Api turned, turned to him and said, please put on your seatbelt. I'm going to drive quite fast. I need you to put on a seatbelt. And the journal said, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And he kind of looked at me and I thought, well, I'm putting on mine. <laughs> And he drove so brilliantly, and I, it was the first time I'd ever seen left foot braking. And he would go through these, and he never crossed. This was on on, on an uh, asphalt road, very very twisty, with solid white line, and he never crossed that white line. Not once did he cross that white line. But he would go into the corners, full throttle, with automatic gearbox, so full throttle, and he would leave his foot buried and just ease the brakes into the corner and just pull them out of the thing. And I said, you need, to, you need to tell me what you're doing. This is amazing. And he was teaching me about high-speed balance of, you know, because when you take your foot off, of course, the car does this, and then you put your foot back on the brake and the car does this, and you have balance front and back, which I knew about. Obviously, we all know about that. But he started saying, now, what, what happens when you're at the edge of traction going really fast? It was it was that. I learned more in an hour with him than in my entire life, just watching this consummate professional drive very fast and very safely. I didn't have this moment doubt in my mind that this guy was, we were fine, you know, so I can understand. That's incredible. Had a bad Those feeling. people are so inspiring. It's like yeah. they are, they are, like you said, they are just on the line. They're on the edge and they know that they can drive most of us can drive at 100% of our ability for about 10% of the time. And the really good drivers like that, they've mastered it where they can drive at 95% all day. All day. You know, it's it's pretty, amazing. Every, pretty amazing. Every Yeah, it is every corner, yeah. every it was just it was just brilliant. And then I started asking him about um at safety and and he started talking about you know, looking at distance, you know, for long distance, you know, you're looking at medium distance and then far distance and then reading the signs. And we had this brilliant hour. It was absolutely fantastic. And um, we, as I think as men, we kind of think we drive well. And then we sit with that somebody like him. I've seen it with flying sometimes. I think I'm a really competent pilot. And I and my a good mate of mine used to fly Red Bull air races. And I would, I flew with him a few times and I realized I was crap because he was yeah. so precise, so unbelievably uh, precise. And I could only fly really well when it, when it was necessary, i.e. when you're 
when you're taking off and landing at other time, you just become lazy and fly. Okay. These guys all the time. So it's magic to watch them. Yeah. The word you said was precision. And that, that defines that type of pilot or that type of driver. They were just they were on their game. They feel it. They feel the car. They understand it. It's part of them. And when you're looking at the the near far distant spatial relationships, it's like it, their eyes are moving so fast, and the peripheral is picking these things up. And the left foot braking thing—I learned left foot braking from Rod Hall in Mexico in Baja, um, who is one of my kind of hero uh, racers. You know, and uh, I was with him on a on a program down there, and. He hollered at me, you know, because I went in and I broke with my right foot. I brake lifted from the throttle and hit the brakes with my right foot. And he's like, "What the heck are you doing? You'll never be a you'll never be a fast driver if you can't brake with your left foot." And I'm like, "That held me." And that was probably like 20 years ago. <laughs> but if you do it all the time, and I talk to people, I mean, I work occasionally as a driving instructor, and even out with some of the people in the Jeep programs, and used to do stuff with Land Rover. Some people have a really hard time. They're like, I can't just brake with my left foot. It's like, no, you need to brake with your left foot, especially if you're in technical terrain, you're driving an automatic, you need to drive with your left foot on the brake. Yeah, especially with an automatic. Yeah, especially with an automatic. I find myself doing it with my with my manual. Uh, I do it all the time with my, with my manual. It's, mm -hmm. but, but, it, but it's practice. It's just doing it more and more and more, and eventually it becomes natural. Yeah, it's practice. Yeah. Tell me, to, to wrap this up, uh, in the overlanding world at the moment, what's the new big destination everybody knows about southern africa and everybody knows about outback australia because of all the youtubers going on and on about how wonderful these places are and they are wonderful but there's not a lot of new stuff out there where is the new destination that we should go wow okay so you're going to stump me on that one that is that's a good question um i in my opinion for anybody that's watching or listening uh, your next station, destination should be somewhere that you have not been. And it might be one of the places that you've read about or heard about or watched a video on. But I I think that going to a place that you haven't been, uh, at least for me, it um, helps me maintain that excitement I had 20-something years ago when I'm like, oh, man, I'm taking off to do this. I'm getting on a plane. I'm going to Cape Town or 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 Delhi, I don't know that it should be put into a box of, of uh, I mean, there's so many places I haven't seen. I've been lucky to see a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of places I haven't been. That it should be for the average person, the normal person, and I consider us like normal people. We just have cool jobs. Um, it should be someplace you haven't, haven't been, someplace that you've desired to go. And it could be Africa, it could be Southern Africa. You know, uh, I'm supposed to be heading to Morocco in October. Eastern Morocco, and I've been there before, but I'm still excited to go back because I think you know, there's just amazing culture and ancient architecture. And um, yeah, I didn't answer that question. I can't, I can't put it in a box that way. I mean, one of the places that I want to go is Papua New Guinea, you know, into the highlands and do a big project in Papua New Guinea. I, I have a vehicle uh, that I keep in South America. It's in Uruguay right now. And there's tons of South America that I haven't seen yet. So it's, a matter of getting down there. Um, but back to your question, it's, I think that for most people, you know, it's going to go back to what we started talking about earlier. It's like, how much time do you have? I have had people tell me, it's like, oh, we're going to Australia. And I'm like, that's awesome. And then they say, we're going to New Zealand too. 
And I'll be like, wow, uh, how much time do you have? And they're like, a week. And so they're going to fly, fly 16 hours to get to Melbourne and probably take a flight out to Alice and Uluru and then like fly to Auckland. And it's like, we did Australia and we did New Zealand, but it's like you and I both know they really they went there. They got their passport stamp, but it's like, you know, bite off a chunk that you have the ability to do and actually see some stuff. Um, and just someplace you haven't been. I mean, that's the new destination. Morocco is somewhere I've not been, and I'm actually planning something for 24 in Morocco. I want to do something in the UK. It's not an expedition. It's a road trip. <laughs> I recently did my US trip was not an expedition. It was a road trip. I think after talking to you now, I'm going to be a little bit more circumspect when choosing to use the word expedition. Road <laughs> trip. It was, we were in a van, in a camper van, and we had a fantastic time, and I made a couple of videos, and it was a road trip. But what I also did is I did an overlanding boat trip. Now, an overland boat, the, 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 a friend of mine who's built it, he, he was building the boat, and, and all the people helping you build it what are you using it for well, we're using it for overlanding and they're like what, what? Are, you, are you out of your mind said, no 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 see there are places to go that you can't get to overland but you can with a boat so we use a boat our boat is our four-wheel drive we're still getting to those outback remote places but we have to use a boat we don't have any choice but to use the boat and since he started building this and we did a short trip down in Lake and Lake Powell. It was absolutely brilliant. Speaking to some people in Australia, and there are Australians that do this too. They'll take their boat and go out for a week, pack it full of beers and fishing rods and go and explore the northern part of the Kimberley. You, I've been to the Kimberley by car, but by boat, you just see it in a completely different way. And actually, I would say, Boat's probably better, a better way of being isolated, a better way of seeing that incredible, those incredible scenes of the Kimberley is by boat. So he started this new thing called Overland Boating. I hope he starts so, a YouTube channel. <laughs> forex, Forex Boating, whatever. Yeah, I know. yeah that's it. It was really good. Well, you know, before, the, I, it, it's funny, the subject just came up on something I, I, I read on a post. It was about overlanding and, you know, what it means and, um, you know, the last 20 years or something. And I had to jump in. Actually, it was written by a friend of mine. And I, and I on the side, I just sent a note. It's like, you know, overlanding has been around since centuries before Marco Polo, because you either went over sea or you went over land. And there was a defined difference based on um, the insurance needs. <laughs> like Lloyd's of London and that type of thing. It's like where, you know, they were insuring this boat to, to come around the Cape and carry spice back from the spice islands or, or are they traveling the Silk Road, you know? So the, the term's been around for so long. I mean, it's really, obviously it's come to kind of the mainstream lexicon, but you know, that the term has been there forever. But speaking of your boat thing, that's actually, that's actually one of my upcoming things. I've sailed since I was in college, 16 foot Hobie and drug it all the way up and down the coast of uh, California and into Mexico. And my wife and I uh, have a, a small sailboat and, uh, but a bigger sailboat is on the horizon. So I'll be doing some boat overlanding, right? Overland boating. <laughs> and then you might not hear from me because I might take off for six months or a year. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I think it's fresh new material for magazine writing and articles, actually, the, the whole boat, the whole overland boating idea. It's not for fishing, you see, because all these people building the boat are saying, well, don't you go fishing? And he said, well, I, I have fished. I know how to fish and I do occasionally fish, but that's not why I'm building the boat. I'm building it to go overland, exploring. So it's an exploring yeah. boat. Yeah. And, and there's um, so much to same, see. Same so problems. You, you, you have to deal with weather even more than you do with overlanding, obviously. But weather, range, fuel points, uh, return agendas, and obviously tides and other things that go with traveling and water, but they're so much similar. And we were completely cut off, but we did have a, uh, we did have cell phone signal. So you can get cell phone signal all over Lake Powell. And we were, I was kind of hoping to get a dead signal. And actually it turned out we did have a dead signal, but only because we were in a really shallow, very, very narrow yeah. gorge. But it was so nice just doing it in such a different way and actually waking up in the morning being surrounded by fish, 10,000 fish surrounding us in this little est little part of the, of the lake that nobody yeah. goes to. It was brilliant. But yeah, that's it. And you know, the, and there are a lot of similarities between um, say I, mine would be a sailboat, but because you've got even more systems than you have on a vehicle, because you've got an entire electrical grid on a sailboat. You know, or a powerboat. You've got an engine and a transmission and a drive system. You've got a, a plumbing system. I mean, you've got everything else that comes along with electronics, the nav, um, a genset if you've got a generator. Uh, so, I mean, you you need to be pretty much a jack of all trades. And that's a lot of, you know, what I, you know, the, the overlanding thing is that um, when you do head out, if it's an expedition or crossing the Simpson or going into, you know, remote places, like in my opinion, you need to really fine tune your skills. You know, you need to sharpen your skills from understand your vehicle. Um, I think that's one of the things that's lost in modern vehicles is that most people have no idea how to work on them and that you even, that, or even, even that you could, even if you were working, driving an old carbureted, you know, straight six, 258 Jeep or an old Land Rover, it's like, can you, do you know that, you know, that Defender has a full floating axle? And do you know what that is? Or do you know that you can actually pull that axle out? If you had a long magnet, you can get the broken piece out. And if you carry one, you can be self-sufficient and fix it on a trail by yourself. That type of thing. I mean, I think a lot of that is the skill side of it. But it's something been, I think most people could work on. But it's being eroded by the way new vehicles are built and designed. Some of them you just cannot touch. You know, very, very highly, highly complex vehicles. Yeah. But even my own, I look at my troop carriers, my Africa troop carriers, a straight six diesel. If something went wrong with that motor, I would have a very good chance of finding out what it was, maybe even fixing it. My V8, it's just not as easy. It's just, I know it's the same principle, but it's governed by electronics. So if the, few, if the, 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 the diesel pump fails, well, why does it fail? immobilizer or is there something else that something else well i don't know i don't actually know what to do. I, mean, I feel out of my depth even thinking about it one h said if it's not getting fuel the engine won't run why isn't it getting fuel is the electrical connection correct yeah it's fine it's got the cylinder is opening so why isn't it getting fuel well why isn't it getting fuel there's a pipe there's some filters why isn't it getting fuel if it's it's got to be one of those two things it can't be anything yeah. else there's nothing else yeah. Yes. So I'm comfortable with it. 
and I'm not comfortable with the V8 because it can be other things, electronic. Yeah. And those electronic things, they are a, a, a challenge in the bush. Yeah. And w what do you do, yeah. really? Yeah. Have a I scan mean, gauge. You might be able to give me a warning and give me a hint of what True. it is, True. but can I fix it? Mm -hmm. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, electronics are a bugger. Especially when you've got, like, I was just uh, analyzing a, a diagnosing a battery indicator light on the dash in my wife's vehicle. And, you know, checked it. Okay. It doesn't seem that the alternator is putting out voltage, but there are six, there are like five other things that could cause that to happen as well. Like if a 7.5 amp fuse that runs the IM1 fuse, which sends a signal to the ignition, which sends a signal to the ECM, which sends a signal back to the alternator to make a charge. It's like, you know, it's not like the old days, <laughs> especially in an old diesel. We got one wire and you got fuel. <laughs> and it's impossible to know everything. It's impossible unless yeah. you're actually, that's your job, to know your vehicle so well that no matter what happens to it, you can fix it with a new vehicle, with any modern vehicle. Yeah. Older vehicles, yes. Modern vehicles, no. And we have to just live with that and hope for reliable vehicles and maybe yeah. just mitigate the risk. But... Uh, I've just done a solo trip through WA with my with my troop carrier, and honestly, if I had a major engine failure, I could I would be stranded. I would have to pick up the sat phone and say I need help. Mm -hmm. I would um, I had a suspension issue, it wasn't a problem. I, I sorted it. It took me an hour and a half, and I sorted my suspension issue. It was the corrugations were car breaking type corrugations, and they did actually cause some damage. And I sorted it on the track because there's a. There's, there's no electronics. There's nothing. It's just pieces of steel and you just climb underneath and you go, mm, yeah, that's not right. And then uh, you get some spanners out and you sort it. Not with these highly electronic suspensions. Yeah. Yeah. I personally would really, I would be challenged with having a vehicle like that. And I've driven a number of them, but, um, you know, as far as like the new, you know, I was, this is where I came from. I have a 2002 Toyota Tacoma which is like an American version, similar to the Hilux. And it has a fuel injected V6. I was paranoid going to that fuel injected motor because I'm like, if this thing dies, if the computer dies, I can't work on it. Um, I do now realize that I have a much easier time diagnosing issues and that it's been incredibly reliable. I mean, I've got 305,000 miles on it and it's been to Mexico dozens and dozens of times and you know all the way up and down the east coast of you know america and i you know i've learned to trust it and i think that's the thing is that any of the new vehicles is until you get to that point you know yeah it could leave me stranded someday but you know if the computer died but um i've also learned how to how to work on just about everything on the vehicle i just think it's important i think that the skill side of it um i've been i do a skills um, article for or a column for one of the magazines and I did one on air pressure um, you know the big controversy of how much air you should air down to and I basically at the end of this long dissertation on air pressure I'm like you gotta you gotta experiment there is no one right air pressure because of all the you know the weight the size of the vehicle the aspect ratio the rim diameter the type the, of sand the, there's 50 the... different types yeah Absolutely. And the sidewall, and the sidewall, how stiff is the sidewall? It, 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 even down to, what is it looking like? And I, I tend to do that now. I go, what is it looking like? Yeah, it's got a nice, yeah. it's nice and flat. It's not go. too flat. It's there got a, 
yeah, it should be good. Let's see. And sometimes, yeah, yeah not as low as I thought it would need it to be. But it's you got to do it to test it. But uh, I think yeah. a lot of people just want that starter. That want to they want that they want to and they want to kind of say okay, there's a there has to be a, there are too many opinions. I need something scientific, yeah. and I can understand that. But at the end of the day, it'll be their own judgment call. It is, and that was my suggestion. I'd say go down to depending on the train. I mean, go down to say fifty percent of your street pressure. See how it feels. Look at the sidewall bulge. See what kind of deformation you've got, and then take it down a little bit more. You know, until depending on the terrain, like I, I was, you know, so it, there is no right number. I was on a guided trip on the Sierra Trek, which is a Fordyce trail here in Northern California. So in the morning, I, I've got like 50 participants and I've got a crew of about 10. And I make sure I just tell everybody air down, you know, pick your pressure air down. But then usually at about 11 o'clock is that we leave at um, sunrise. So it's early. And about 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, it's getting pretty warm up there. And I get on the radio, I'm like, all right, I want everybody to get out and check your air pressure. And inevitably, because when I check, I can feel it when my air tires go from like six pounds to nine. You know, I'm running bead locks and big tires. Um, and, and I'm like, I can feel it. I start bouncing off of stuff instead of the tire just marshmallowing into an obstacle. And uh, sure enough, people get out and they're just like, holy crud, I have no idea. I aired down to 12 pounds and then I was at 15. Um, that's, you know, <laughs> temperature, volume, and pressure. They're all interrelated. So as the temperature goes up, you get a constant pressure. You're going to or a constant volume. You're going to have an increased pressure. Um, so it's just little stuff like that. Chris, where can people find your work and contact you if they're looking for any magazines, publications out there looking for articles? Where can they contact you? So I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, Andrew, but um, I have a website that I haven't touched in probably 13 years. It's horrible. People say that they find it and I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm like, it really needs to be updated. My my website is is adventurearchitects.com. And that's my email too, chris at adventurearchitects.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd brag about my, it's on my to-do list to recreate a new website and kind of update it with things I've done in the last 13 or 14 years. I do, um, I, I, you know, I work with Australia 4x4, um, have for about, oh gosh, almost 20 years now. Um, and um, also we've been at Jeep Action Magazine in Australia, all the U.S. publications. Um, and uh, I mean, really people can kind of Google Chris Collard and they'll either get a kickboxer um, or they'll find me or a doctor in England. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. Those of you listening and watching, I will put Chris's details in the description in the video stroke podcast feed so you can find him. Chris, it's been a pleasure. It's been really good to catch up. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, awesome. No, I'm, I appreciate that you are reaching out to me, and this is super fun. Uh, I hope uh, hope we didn't bore any of your listeners too much. They can now that they know how to get a hold of me. They can like, oh, throw I know. They know how to digital get a hold of me, they can... tomato. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nice chatting to you. Thank you again, Chris. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Adventure podcast with me, Andrew St. Pierre White. To find out more information, check out thenextjourney.net. Join us each Sunday 